Today's scripture reading is in Judges, Judges 17.6, Judges 18.1, Judges 19.1, and Judges 21.25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In those days, when there was no king in Israel. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus, as we approach your word, especially this text, may we receive what is you want to what is you want us to receive. Pray that we won't flinch away from what you say about our hearts, and yet at the same time recognize that you came into a world of darkness to save and redeem and make new. We are not who we once were. We are new creations, and all this is from you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Um, it'd be funny to do a poll who here thought we were going to read all of 17 to 21, but no, 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 that would not be cruel like that. <laughs> like every self-respecting American kid, I grew up watching Disney movies, and maybe I am biased, this is for you Chandler, maybe I'm biased, but I tend to think that the golden age of Disney movies was the 90s, because that's what I was growing up, and I'm guessing if you grew up in the 2000s or the 80s or the 70s, you probably thought those Disney movies were the golden era, and I'm confident to inform you that you would be wrong. They were the 90s. I mean, do you, can you match the majesty of the Lion King or the music of Aladdin, right? I mean, it's just, I just don't think they've come close to hitting the heights that they hit in the 90s. But there's a steady theme that you find in most Disney cartoons, in the 90s especially, but I think through most Disney movies. And it's this theme. It's the importance of following your heart. Um, it doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter what tradition says. It doesn't matter what your parents say. You need to follow your heart. Find out what it is and follow it, right? So Aladdin, it doesn't matter that you're a street kid, that you literally don't have an ounce of royal blood in you. You can be a prince if you follow your heart. Um, Mulan, right? It doesn't matter that you're not a man and it's illegal for you to be a soldier. Mulan, follow your heart and you can be a soldier. This is, the, this is the, the common theme, right? Or, you know, frozen. Let it go. Just be yourself, Elsa. That's the whole problem. You need to follow your heart. Okay, here's the problem with that theme. It sounds very uh, inspiring in a movie, but if you actually try to live that out in real life in any kind of consistent way, it is terrible, terrible life advice, okay? You tell a middle schooler, hey, man, you follow your heart, well, I have yet to meet the middle schooler whose heart is telling them to study for their geometry exam. If we really told middle schoolers, follow your heart, and did it consistently, we would have very few graduates of middle school, right? Who here every March is saying, my heart is leading me to do my taxes? Or on a hot July day, my heart is leading me to mow my lawn, the fact of the matter is that there's many mundane, boring things in life that are actually pretty important. If you don't do your taxes, the IRS will have a thing or two to say about that. You actually have to do them, regardless of what your heart is leading you to do. 
But even more importantly, what if your heart is leading you to take what belongs to your neighbor? Right? Or worse, what if your heart is telling you to harm your neighbor or murder your neighbor? In other words, what if your heart is sick? And so it's an unreliable guide to what is really true and good and beautiful. If that was the case, then following your heart would be the worst thing that you could do. And this is what we see Israel doing throughout all of Judges, but this is the emphasis here in these last couple chapters. Israel, as, as the refrain went, Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, translate, everyone followed their hearts. They did what made sense to them, and at least all of the chaos and violence and, 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 and all the disturbing nature uh, that we see in this chapter. But part of what this chaos is pointing us towards as Israel follows their own hearts, as they do what's right in their own eyes, showing us their desperate need of a king and our desperate need of a king, not to save us from military threats or financial problems or health problems or social whatever, but from the cancer that's in each one of us, uh, the sin in our hearts. So our outline for us this morning, first point, doing what is right in their own eyes in worship. And this is the theme for chapters 17 and 18. Second point, doing what is right in their own eyes in their daily lives. And that covers the next three, or the last three chapters, chapters 19 to 21. And then our third point, Jesus the King. So first point, doing what is right in their own eyes in worship. Now, some background, we're just kind of catching up where we are. We've, we've actually finished the formal part of the Judges, the book of the Judges, right? So if Judges is about the Judges, well, Samson is the last judge, and he dies in chapter 16. In chapters 3 to 16, there are these kind of chapters dealing with uh, how God raised up judges, and the emphasis there is not on the people of Israel necessarily, it's more on God raising up judges. How even though Israel would you know, do what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, that God in his grace would, would redeem them and save them again and again and again. And the emphasis is God's grace and running after Israel, even though they continue to wander. And that his grace never runs out. But when we get to chapters 17 to 21, the focus shifts, and now we begin to see what a day in the life looked like during the time of Judges. And what's a little bit confusing is chapter 17 does not follow chronologically after chapter 16. So chapter 16 ends, Samson dies. And that's at the end of the period of the judges. That would have been shortly before Samuel, who was the one who anointed David as king. It's at the end of the ministry of the judges. All of a sudden, chapter 17, we're moving back in time about 200 years. And in fact, we're in just a generation after they've entered the promised land. And we know that because two individuals are mentioned. One who is the grandson of Moses and another who is the grandson of Aaron. And so when we start in chapter 17 through the end, we're actually in the time period of the grandchildren of Moses and Aaron. And the first few verses of chapter 17 are worth actually reading. We're going to be summarizing a whole lot, obviously, and there's so much I'm not going to be able to touch. But the first few verses of 17 are helpful in illustrating how clearly this theme of Israel doing what is right in their own eyes in regards to their worship in regards to how they think about God and interact with God. So uh, follow along in chapter 17 as I read verses 1 to 6. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. 
And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 11 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods. And he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So a couple observations here. We begin by learning that Micah has stolen 1,100 shekels of silver from his mother. This is not the most propitious beginning to our chapter. 1,100 shekels of silver was not a small amount of money. If you remember from the story of Samson, the lords of the Philistines, the prime leaders of the nation of Philistia, offered Delilah 1,100 shekels of silver each if she will turn Samson over to them. This is a lot of money. And Micah has stolen it, and, and, he, and he returns it. Well, that, that's good, but it's not clear whether he's returning it because he's repentant or because he's afraid of the curse that his mother uh, put on this, which again, his mother is cursing in his ear. So there's just not some, this is like a strange beginning. This is telling us this is going to be a little bit off the beaten track. And, uh, but then his, when, when he returns it to his mother, his mother says, okay, I'm going to dedicate it to the Lord. And this seems good because she uses the covenant name Yahweh. She doesn't say this is for the Baals and the Asherahs. She's like, no, this is for the covenant God, the God who delivered us from Egypt, the God who is revealed to us in the scriptures. And you're like, oh, great. We have a Yahweh worshiper. Excellent. But then it says, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. And I dedicate it to Yahweh to build an idol. And what's the problem there? Well, breaks the second commandment. In Exodus 20, 44 to 5, which gives us the Ten Commandments, the second commandment reads, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The mother of Micah, she rightly wants to honor the Lord, but she's going to do it in a way that God had explicitly prohibited. Second, she makes this grand gesture I will give this 1,100 shekels of silver to the Lord. But what does she actually do? Oh, she took 200 pieces of silver. Uh, that's like less than 20% of what she just promised to give to the Lord. Makes this grand, generous gesture, but in reality, she's just she's keeping most of it for herself. Somewhat prefiguring Ananias and Sapphira, the story in Acts 5, where they sell a piece of land and they give it to the church to show how generous they are, but they've actually kept some back. Well, here she keeps most of it back. In other words, we see greed and deceit and hypocrisy in this story. Third, Micah the son then takes a silver. He sets up idols. He makes a shrine in his home, his own personal worship space, with likely an altar where he could offer sacrifices. And then he ordains his son, who is an Ephraimite. And all of these are breaking explicit commands of the Lord. God had said only Levites can be priests. They were an entire tribe 
set apart to be priests. But he makes his son, who's an Ephraimite. On what grounds? On what, on what authority does he do that? Well, not God's. And then he makes a shrine, a, a, a worshiping a, an altar to the Lord in his own home, although God had said, you shall not do this. You can only worship me in the place I say, which is at the tabernacle, which at this point would have been in Shiloh. As Tim Keller writes, God had not allowed the Israelites to worship anywhere they wanted, but Micah sets up his own sanctuary at his own convenience. Israel's religion has become one of personal preference. So again, in a nutshell, we see Israel doing what is right in their own eyes in regards to their worship. They're following their hearts and what they think makes sense about God and what makes sense of how to worship God. Well, this feels right, so we're going to do it, as opposed to what God had very clearly revealed to them. And this is the theme for the rest of the chapter. And again, I just wanted to read that because it's so clear and obvious. But the theme continues. I'm just going to summarize the rest of chapter 17 and 18. But we see this continued theme of a feelings-driven worship. And let me just be clear. If you know me, obviously I don't have a problem with emotions, right? That's, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, I know. It's a feelings-driven faith that is the problem here where the feelings and the emotion are driving the content and the way we think about God. And we see this throughout the rest of the chapter. So after, after this story about Micah and these shrines, we meet a Levite. We think, oh great, a Levite, one set apart for the Lord. But from the very beginning, it's clear that this is a very ambitious, self-serving, ladder-climbing Levite. He leaves Bethlehem, his home, because he's looking for greener pastures. And he ends up with Micah because Micah offers him a good financial deal. Even though this Levite would have known, hey, this is all contrary to God's laws, Micah pays the right price. He's the stepping stone for this Levite's career ambitions. At the same time, we meet the tribe of Dan, who's looking for, their, who's looking for a land to dwell in. If you remember all the way back in Judges 1, Israel failed to complete the conquest. There's many nations they didn't drive out. And in fact, the, 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 nation, or the tribe of Dan, they didn't inherit any of their land. And so here, this entire tribe is looking for a land to inherit. And rather than taking the land that God had given to them, they're going to go for something that looks a little bit easier. And they come across uh, Micah and his shrine, and they think, wow, those idols look pretty impressive. And so they basically pillage the shrine and take the, tri- and take the, the idols and, and all that's there, and, uh, and they take the Levite with them. And then they go and they set up a, a, a city uh, up north. And you would think that, again, the Levite would say, hey, guys, this is not how we worship Yahweh. The one person we expect to be a voice for the Lord, and yet he's ecstatic because now he's going to be the priest of an entire tribe. Again, he's, this is a great career move for this Levite. And then chapter 18 ends with this, and we find out astoundingly who this narcissistic, compromised Levite priest was. 1830, and the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses. And his sons are priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of captivity. This Levite priest was the grandson of Moses himself. This is where Israel has come to. Again, this is Israel following their hearts in terms of how they worship, of how they relate to God, of how they think about God. Now, what's wrong with following our heart when it comes to how we worship and think about God? I am not in any way saying emotions are bad. God created us with emotions. Emotions are good. What's wrong with following our hearts, though, with how we think about God? 
and how we worship God? Well, first, as Augustine argued 1,700 years ago, our hearts are disordered. They're out of whack. We love what we're not supposed to love, and we don't love what we're supposed to love. Same time, we, we love too much what we should love less, and we love too little what we should love more. We just don't love in good ways. In other words, our, our hearts are disordered. They're terrible guides for showing us what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. You follow your heart, it's like following a blind guide. It's not going to end well. But second, and this is the real kicker, is that if we allow our feelings to dictate our faith rather than what God has revealed in his word, we may find ourselves worshiping a figment of our imagination rather than the true God. We may find ourselves worshiping a God that we wish was, a God that we project on what's there, rather than the God who is. And as Tim Keller writes, that is another form of idolatry. Tim Keller says, in some ways, this is the main sin of our time. How often have you heard someone say, I don't believe in a God like that. I like to think of God as, and I think everyone in our room has heard that before at some point, has maybe even said that or thought that. That is worshiping God through the work of our own hands, and we can do this without fashioning a physical image. It's the same exact thing as if we went out back and cut down a tree and set up an astral pole and said, this is my God. When we say things like, well, I can't believe in a God like that. This is Israel doing what is right in their own eyes in worship. So what do we do? Worship God as he's revealed himself. Worship him as he's revealed himself in the scriptures. Because God is... God is, oh, please hear this. God is greater and more beautiful and more lovely and more terrifying than your feelings on their own will ever lead you to know. God is just better than our broken and disordered feelings can lead us to on their own strength. Only the God who really is in all his splendor and all his majesty can stop our mouths and bring us up short and cause us to fall on our knees weeping in joy. Our feelings cannot do that. Only the God who really is can take our lives, turn them upside, make a glorious mess out of it all, and then bring something beautiful out of the ashes of our former way of living. Only the true God can make us pant, thirst for him, like a deer in a desert. Of course, the true God, uh, he will make us uncomfortable, just like a relationship with any actual person who is not controlled by us will make us uncomfortable at times. And in the disorderedness of our hearts, we may even get angry at God sometimes. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your heart. In fact, our hearts and our feelings have to be discipled to learn how to feel. Instead, trust the scriptures, for in them we don't have the words of men or women, but we have the voice of God speaking to us. And when it doesn't make sense to us, we don't trust our feelings, we trust the scriptures, because our hearts are disordered. So this is the first part. This is the uh, first half of this concluding section in Judges. It's Israel doing what is right in their own eyes in regards to their worship and how they think about God. And I'll be honest, that's so important because from that flows all of the crazy, dark, twisted, 
events of chapters 19 and 21. Because after Israel does what is right in terms of how they think about God, then they begin to do what is right in society at large. And this is our second point. So again, our first point is doing what is right in their own eyes in worship. Second is doing what is right in their own eyes in daily life. Now, again, we're not going to read through chapters 19 to 21, but they are hard to read. It's one of the most brutal and honest depictions of humans apart from the grace of God, apart from his restraining power. Uh, but just to summarize, it begins again with a Levite, a Levite who has a concubine. A concubine would have been somewhere in between a slave and a wife. So more rights than a slave, but less rights, less rights than a wife. And wives didn't have many rights to begin with at this time. And so this Levite has a concubine. He's traveling north. He stops in a Benjaminite town of Gibeah, and he spends the night there. And while he's spending the night uh, in the home of a fellow Ephraimite, this scene happens. And I'm just, I'm going to give you, a, this is not a PG text. And the reason we're reading it is because it is the central event that everything that happens in the rest of the chapters centers around. But I'm going to read it, verses 22 to 26. This is chapter 19. So again, this Levite and his concubine are in this home in Gibeah. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And obviously that is a euphemism. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man, the Levite, seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and they abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and she fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Uh, as a side note, you can't help going angry when you read that, the cowardice of the Levite, the evil of the men of Gibeah. And at the same time, your heart breaks for this woman. She dies on the doorstep of the man who had forsaken her and abandoned her and used her as a shield for his own safety. And I just, I just, I just want to say this, just know this. The anger that we feel at this story, it is only a dim and very small reflection of the fury of God at this kind of evil. Revelation says one day people will cry out for the mountains to cover them from the wrath of the one who is to come, and these men have no idea of the one to whom they will give an account. Secondly, again, God loved this woman infinitely more than you or I ever would, even if it was our own mother or our own sister or our own daughter or wife. 
And so likewise, our grief is only a dim and small reflection of the grief that God experiences over an event like this. And that begs the question, why doesn't God intervene? And we don't know. The Bible doesn't reveal those questions to us. But it does tell us this, that one day Jesus will come back and he himself will wipe away every tear. And what that means is that when Jesus comes back, there won't be more tears. There won't be unanswered questions in the light of his face. That will be our answer. And that is the only answer that will suffice when it comes to evil like this. So that's a side note. But after this happens, the Levite finds his dead concubine, takes her back home with him, and then he cuts her body into 12 pieces and sends a piece to each tribe of Israel, saying, we need to meet about this. And so 11 tribes come together. They're obviously horrified, both because he dismembered this woman's body and also because of what had been done. And, and then the, uh, the Levite gives a very self-serving description of what happened that somehow completely skates over the fact that he sacrificed his concubine for himself. But nonetheless, he describes what the men of Gibeah did and the men of Israel are infuriated and decide to hold these men to account. But the tribe of Benjamin sides with the town of Gibeah because Gibeah is part of their tribe. And so you have civil war in Israel. Eleven tribes versus one tribe. And eventually the eleven tribes, they, they win. And they don't just win, they then slaughter all of the Benjaminites to the point where there are 600 men of Benjamin left, and that's it. And then you have the, and, 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 and while they're going through this in the assembly, the, the, the men of Israel, the 11 tribes, had all vowed, not only will we hold these men account, but we will not allow any of our women or men to intermarry with them. Well, now you have 600 Benjaminites left. All of the tribes have vowed that they're not going to allow their daughters to intermarry, and the rage of the moment has passed, and Israel's realizing we just committed genocide against one of our tribes. How do we make sure that the tribe of Benjamin doesn't cease to exist? And so they have this great idea. They realize there was a town of Israel that had not heeded the summons to assemble, and therefore they had not been there to make that vow to not allow their daughters to intermarry. So they go to that town, they slaughter everyone who's not an eligible woman, and then they capture the women and give them to the men of Benjamin. It's 400 women. Well, that solved part of that problem. Solves. Uh, but there's still 200 men of Benjamin who don't have wives. So Israel gives the men of Benjamin uh, permission to go and abduct daughters of Israel who are dancing at a religious festival at Shiloh. And then the book of Judges ends. In verse 25 it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what happened? So again, we had first Israel doing what was right in terms of how they thought about God and worship. And then it moves into Israel just doing what is right in terms of how they live their daily lives. And this is what happens. First, women become objects, property to be used and then discarded. And that's what's so disgusting about this story with the Levite is he treats his concubine as just something to be used. He shoves her out of the house as something to be, you know, it's like, like she's a, 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 an object. And then he 
cuts up her body in 12 pieces, which is a shocking treatment of a human body. Again, as if she's a rag that he can cut up into pieces and use as he wants. And then when the men of Benjamin need wives, right, uh, and they go into the town and, and they take all the, the women, the women don't have a, a choice. It's like they're objects to be used to bear children for the men of Benjamin. And there's a number of other instances like we could look at of women being treated as property and objects in these chapters. Again, this is humanity doing what is right in their own eyes. And obviously this is a sad and evil distortion of what God created us to be like. In Genesis 127, it says, God created mankind, humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Men and women are made in, the God's, in God's image. It means every person has literally the imprint of God and somebody reflects who God is. And so every person must be treated with dignity and honor and as a person. No human being, man or woman, can ever be treated like an object or property to be bought or sold or used for some other means. We should never treat people as if they're a means to an end. John Paul II, he wrote a lot on the theology of the body. He calls this the personalistic norm. It's an ethical norm. In other words, it doesn't matter how good the final end is. If you treat people as means, it is morally evil, period, full stop, no footnotes needed. Because every human is made in God's image. And yet in this story, women are treated as objects, as means to an end, whether that end is your safety or that end is the future propagation of your tribe. This is not how it should be. The objectification of women obviously continues today, right? The Me Too movement has been helpful in that it's shown that despite our progressive and egalitarian ideals, women are so very much abused in all kinds of ways. The sexual revolution has been anything but liberating. Hookup culture has only served to normalize sexual predation. And we have to speak without stuttering on that. I remember I was in college, the first time I heard uh, someone use that kind of language, a psychology professor, he said, you know the kind of locker room talk, guys brag about who and what they did and all that? It's like, that's, that's the language of a sexual predator. Hookup culture enables that kind of behavior and it is all too often women who bear the brunt of it. But I want to hit a little closer to home for us. Pornography and lust in general is inherently objectifying. It reduces men and women to objects for your sexual gratification. Pornography and, and, and lust, are, are, they're, they're sexually immoral in themselves. Full stop. End of sentence. But they're also so evil because you take someone who again bears the imprint of God and you use them for your own sexual desires. You're spitting in the face of God. But secondly, a lot of times, the way that we have responded to porn and sex has also continued to objectify women. And this one's a little bit, uh, a little bit more subtle. This is not all the time. There's been a lot in quote-unquote purity culture that was very helpful, but at times there were themes where it never addressed the fact that, hey, when you lust after a woman or, or a man, you're objectifying them. Instead, what it said is, no, 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 like, women are still sex objects. They're just not your sex object, 
right? Like they're just not one that you have access to. That's why it's wrong. But it doesn't address the fact that you're treating them as objects. How do we fight lust? It's not bouncing your eyes as if a woman is like toxic material that they're going to infect you. It's learning to live and grow and form yourself as a human being that sees other people as people, not as just a collection of secondary sex characteristics, not as just their genitalia. That's how we fight lust. Stop viewing people as objects here for your pleasure. You see a man or a woman walking down the street, that is someone made in the image of God who has dreams and hopes and desires. Treat them as people. So objectification of women. First thing that happens as Israel does what is right in their own eyes. But second, they, be, uh, they begin to pick tribe over the people of God. We see tribal allegiance taking priority over, over allegiance to the people of God or even to God himself. Again, the Benjaminites, they don't deny what the men of Gibeah did. They weren't like, oh, you're telling a lie. They're like, yeah, they, they did it. And yet they defend them, even to the point of going to war on behalf of these men who had committed this atrocious deed. Why? What is going on here? And there's something deep within the human heart that finds identity in whom we belong to, right? So we say, not just I am someone from America, but I am American. You hear that? That's an identity statement. Or I'm not just someone who rides a bike, I'm a cyclist. I am a person. You know, it's like identity. Or, or I'm not just someone who voted for a Republican or voted for a Democrat. I am a Republican or I am a, I am a Democrat. Now, tribal identities aren't inherently wrong. It would be ridiculous to assume we can never have these kinds of identities of belonging. Your family is probably the first tribal identity you ever had, and that was a good identity to have. Tribal identities become idolatrous, though, when one, we're unable to recognize the sins and the, and the evils within our own tribe, and two, we begin to pay greater allegiance to our tribe than to our ultimate identity, which is citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, we are almost a year away from another national election, and I can tell you as a pastor, my blood pressure increases as we draw closer because of the last eight years. And I just, you know, I just want to say this. From my view, from where I'm standing, I think both parties are critically flawed and have moral evils baked into their party platform. Both parties. And so I'll, I'll just say this. You know, vote your conscience. What else can you do? We all got to make the best sense we can. But let's just be honest that there are no easy choices. And whomever you vote for, there's going to be problems with that. Even if you vote independent, even if you vote third party, there's still moral problems with that. Further, Let's never forget where our prime identity is, which is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And praise God that long after America has fallen and crumbled into dust, and long after the two candidates who will be up for election, whoever they might be, long after they have turned to dust, and long after the parties they represent have ceased from memory, Jesus will still reign. His kingdom will still endure. Remember that. If in the coming year you are tempted to lob bombs at Christians, 
verbal bombs. If they're real bombs, please come talk to me. Let's, let's, let's handle that. But verbal bombs at Christians who disagree with you. Remember that, because you're going to spend all eternity with that person. And I'm just going to say this. Don't make it awkward, okay? Don't make it awkward. The upshot is you have all eternity to apologize for being a jerk to them. But, like, you're going to be living with them, man, so just don't make it awkward. So, anyways, so first, as they, as they do what is right in their own eyes, we see them, women are treated as property and objects. We see tribalism over the people of God. And the third, we see bitterness and vengeance. And again, the 11 tribes, like, they're right to be horrified with the men of Gibeah did. But then they commit genocide. They massacre everyone. They don't just kill the men who committed this or the soldiers who are fighting, but then they go into the cities and the towns and they kill the women and the children as well. This is not justice. It's genocide. Uh, this is not righteousness. This is just vengeance, bloodlust, violence. Israel doing what is right in their own eyes. Israel following their heart. So this is Israel at the end of... During the time of Judges, they worship a god of their own creation, and their society disintegrates into abuse, tribalism, and bitter vengeance. What do we do with the book of Judges? And by the way, you can see why I'm doing this all in one sermon. I don't think we need multiple sermons. This is dark. This is dark. But this is in the scriptures. And the scriptures are ultimately good news. Uh, we want to be faithful to what the text is telling us because it's not up to us to tell God what kind of Bible he should have written. So what do we do with this? Well, the whole point of Judges is showing us that Israel desperately needed a king and not like the deliverers, Ehud, Samson, Jephthah, all of them. They needed someone who's going to deliver them not from the threats outside of them but from what was inside their own hearts. They needed a king. And Jesus is that king. So again, our first point, doing what is right in their own eyes in worship. Second, doing what is right in their own eyes in daily lives. But third point, Jesus the king. Again, Judges ends with this incredibly downward uh, 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 statement in verse 25. In those days, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, the picture of humanity in Judges is one of the most brutally honest in terms of what humanity can devolve to apart from the grace of God. And it's easy for us to read Judges and read it as this kind of disturbing, foreign, almost exotic, categorically different story from us and just kind of move on and like try to forget about it. Don't read this to our kids until they're like 15. And if we treat it like that, guys, we, we miss the point of Judges. And in fact, we miss the point of the whole Bible. When we read chapter 17 to 21, we are at some level looking in a mirror. We're seeing ourselves. I hope that doesn't offend you. How dare you compare me to the people in chapter 17 to 21? So you don't have to believe me, but take Jesus' word for it. Jesus told us there's no categorical difference between bitter anger and murder. Not that if you're angry, you're going to necessarily murder someone, but that if you're angry, you have the seeds of murder in your heart. And who here has not ever been angry? But Jesus also says there's no categorical difference between lust and adultery. Again, not that every person who lusts after someone is going to commit adultery, but the seed of adultery is present. 
Again, chapter 17 to 21 is a mirror for us. It shows us what we could become and why we, just like Israel, so desperately need a king to save us, to save us from what is inside us. And the gospel, the good news that we hold to with every fiber of our being, the good news that gets us up in the morning when we're tired and we don't feel like we have anything left, the good news that gives us joy in the midst of our sorrow, that gives us hope when the future seems gray, the gospel, the good news is this, that our king loved us while we were in this darkness and he came after us. He came after us. And he came into a world of darkness like this and although we did not deserve to clean his feet, we didn't deserve to kiss the soles of his feet, And then he took all the weight of judgment. He took the weight of the judgment of the men of Gibeah, all that they deserved for their horrendous evil. He took the judgment of the Levite and his cowardice. Jesus bore the judgment of Israel and their bitter violence and vengeance. When Jesus hung on the cross, that is what he was bearing. Which means, Jesus' blood, if it was enough to cover even the sin of the men of Gibeah, and when I say that, I don't mean that they were forgiven. We don't know whether they repented or not. But that Jesus' blood was enough that it could have covered even such a sin. If Jesus' blood is so effective... It doesn't matter what you bring this morning. It doesn't matter what you did this week. It doesn't matter what you did last year. Jesus' blood is enough to forgive you and to wipe you clean. That's the good news. Yeah, we're looking at ourselves in Judges 17 to 21. That's us. Maybe not. We haven't had the life circumstances that have led us to live that out, but the seeds of all that's present in our heart. Jesus came and died for us. If your heart is heavy with guilt and shame this morning, come to Jesus. His blood is enough. He can forgive you. And more than that, he wants you to come. That's the astounding thing. He actually wants you to come. Keep in mind, he is a a king. If you receive life and forgiveness from Jesus, you're going to forfeit your own. Um... You'll spend the rest of your life learning how to die to yourself and live to please and honor him. But know this, the greatest suffering in the service of Jesus is better than the greatest pleasure of this world. And the most humble service in the courts of our Lord is better than being king of the whole world. So come to him. Maybe for the first time you're realizing your sin and your need of forgiveness. Come to Jesus. He stands with arms wide. If you're a Christian but you're seeing some wandering in your life where there's a sin that you've tolerated for far too long, come to Jesus. His arms are open wide. He alone can give you rest for your souls. Don't wait. He's the king that we all need. Let's pray.
Jesus, I pray that you would give us hope that even out of the darkness of judges, that was not the final story, but that you brought your King David, who is just a foreshadowing of the fact that you yourself would one day come. You wouldn't send someone to do the work for you, but you yourself came, and you have not left us as orphans, but you've given your spirit so that we walk out of this sanctuary this morning, not only knowing that we've been forgiven by the blood of Christ and every sin has been expunged. We have freedom you cannot find anywhere else and we go in the presence of the living God himself. Oh, you are too good. Thank you. We pray this in your holy and beautiful name. Amen.